Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Katani. In this episode, we sit down with geneticist and author Adam Rutherford for a chat about his new book, Control, which explores the darkest side of genetics, the horrific legacy of eugenics, which still persists even today. As an undergraduate studying genetics at UCL, Adam Rutherford sat in the Galton Lecture Theatre, named after Francis Galton, Charles Darwin's half-cousin, listening to the leading lights of the field expound on the joys of genes. And some of them didn't shirk from pointing out the connection between the theatre's namesake and the darkest legacy of genetics, the eugenics movement. Today, as an honorary senior research associate at UCL, Adam continues to dig into the history of genetics, race science and eugenics in his teaching and his writing, including his most recent book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, which comes out on February the 3rd. We've previously talked about Galton and eugenics back in our first series, in the episode Sex and Death, which we reposted recently on the feed. So I was keen to sit down with Adam for an in-depth chat about the story of the eugenics movement, from its early days at UCL through to its present manifestation in policies such as enforced sterilisation. It's a tough topic, so why did he want to get stuck into such a thorny and distressing subject? It's always been part of my sort of output, the relationship between the science that we're interested in and the political ramifications and framing that are part of its history and its relevance in contemporary society. So my last book, which was about the relationship between scientific racism and the origins of biology, because I love dealing with these sort of super fun topics. You're a brave Um, man. (laughs) (laughs) So so I I I wrote that, How to Argue the Races came out a couple of years ago. And then this feels like a companion piece to it, because there are these two strands of the origins of biology, and specifically the origins of genetics and evolutionary thought, which are inextricably entwined with, well, one is scientific racism, and the other is eugenics. The why now question is really interesting, I think really important, because I think that when you know these subjects, when you study them, as I have done for for, decades now, you, you begin to see the thing that historians know and say all the time, which is that we see these patterns over and over again. And I think with modern techniques in reproductive medicine and our new tools available to understand the relationship between DNA and physical characteristics or behavioral characteristics, behavioral genetics, the relationship between genotype and phenotype and so on, new techniques that have, that have been developed in the last five, 10 years have relaunched conversations about effectively about the same things that you that the eugenicists were talking about in the late 19th and early 20th century and so i think that you know we we teach this history history and we talk about the history not just because it's interesting which it is and recent but because it informs our current practices so really it's about the idea an idea which started out as a sort of esoteric scientific idea by one guy primarily that fitted into a cultural landscape that was fertile for the development of this, what becomes, in fact, what is always designed as a political idea, that marshals science, right? And the, the idea is, is eugenics. But within 50 years of the origin of eugenics, we have the Holocaust. And so how does an idea start in the salons of gentlemen's clubs and scientific discourse in London? 
how does it grow into one of the defining acts of the 20th century and what are its legacies today so that, yeah that that's that was a long answer to a short question it is interesting we've done a lot of episodes about the history of genetics and you sort of find these these great figures from the past and then you sort of look at them and go oh yeah oh yeah they were eugenicists sometimes it does feel a bit like it's eugenicists all the way down which is is awkward because this is the legacy this is the field and how do we talk about you know these great men and and some great women there are a few there and some of them were eugenicists too people like Maud Sly who we've talked about but let's start with the uh the great man Francis Galton because I've talked about him a bit you've obviously talked about him a lot because that seems to be really the start of what we'd call eugenics and you know and the coining of the term so what who was Galton and like what was his deal in all of this. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Galton is a sort of key person in establishing what is a much older practice, which is the ideas about controlling biology, population control, controlling reproductive autonomy, mostly the control of reproductive autonomy of women by men. But these are old ideas, right? So infanticide. It's breeding, right? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. And it's, and it's very closely associated and always has been with the concept of breeding and agriculture, right? So, you know, people say, oh, we can breed sheep to be like this or cows to be like this, so why can't we do it with humans? And that's an old idea. And, you know, we see it in Republic by Plato, and we see it in the, the legends of the Spartans, and we see it in every culture through history that people have always tried to control unruly biology via techniques which we would probably describe as being eugenics-y today. But what happens with Galton is that, well, he, he's, he's Darwin's half-cousin, right? And so in the 1860s, after The Origin of Species has been published, in which Darwin, you know, recognises the mutability of organisms, although he doesn't talk about humans at all, Galton sees this masterpiece and sees this incredibly central idea to the whole of biology and says, can we apply this to humans? Can we breed humans to be better? Right, so immediately it becomes a political ideology, and Darwin is not, you know, particularly interested in in this as an idea. But what Galton does is set it up in a sort of political landscape in which population control is a big issue. So we're only a few decades after Thomas Malthus has been talking about the difference between exponential growth of a happy population and linear growth of resources available, and this is a you know an economic conundrum. And at the same time, it's it's we're in the Industrial Revolution and Victorian Britain is rapidly expanding in wealth and cities are becoming more larger, urbanised, industrial complexes. And then at the same time, we've got mass immigration from the wealth of the colonies of empire. And so all of this is a big sort of melting pot in which, or, or a big a fertile ground, not a melting pot. It's, it, it's, the, it's the earth in which Galton can come along and say, what we can do here is apply Darwinian ideas to humans in order to improve the stock of the British people. And their motivation for this is that, well, there's a much more visible poor in the urbanisation of cities as a result of the uh, Industrial Revolution. And along with poverty, as everyone knows, you get a higher prevalence of various diseases, of behaviours which are deemed undesirable by people in public, and particularly people in in sort of positions of power. So it becomes, I mean, I describe it in the book as being the sort of scientification. It is, it is turning to scientists 
at a point where we've got a political issue and saying, can you help, right? Is there a framework or a new type of science that we can apply to this political problem? And Galton sets that up. He says, yes, eugenics is the way that we can do this. He's a man who is obsessed with status and rank. He's also an obsessive data collector, you know, sort of ultra-systemizing mind. And he begins thinking about how we can improve the quality of people by initially by measuring the greatness of other people or his attempts to Greatness of men. Let, of let's men. be clear on this. So much of this is all about like the excellence and the greatness of men very specifically. Yeah, I mean, he's across. almost entirely uninterested in women, which I think is an interesting characteristic in, in himself. He was married throughout his life to Louisa Butler, but they didn't produce any children. And he almost never talks about sex itself. But he does do the the beauty thing, doesn't he? He goes around the country seeing like, it's the kind of am I hot or not thing of the different parts of the country where like the women in Aberdeen are the mingers and the ones in the south of England are the hottest. That seems like as far as it goes, it's this very trying to categorise beauty. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, I mean, the, the terminology you use there is not, not much better than what he was doing. I mean, he talks about prize sows as, as, his, um, as part of his categories for female beauty. But it, it's a really, that is a really good example. It's quite funny and it's grotesque to our modern ears, but it is a really good example of what Galton was always trying to do, which was a, to apply metrics to things that are vague or esoteric or determined by value judgments. So that ultra systemizing brain, you know, was part of that. Can you apply metrics to female facial beauty in order that we can understand the underlying biological architecture of what makes a pretty face. Now, of course, as all data bros do, it fails to see the subjective experience of things like beauty. It fails to acknowledge that he's talking about a particular class of people in one particular country. He's not interested in broader ideas. He's also part of the culture of white supremacy in 19th century Britain. He's an upper class, successful, wealthy man, comes from a Quaker family and is independently wealthy after his dad has has died when he was a young man. He's also successful as a writer. He went, he travelled extensively and wrote successful travel books about, you know, how how to survive in the in deepest, darkest Africa. So he's a big cheese already by this point. But what he sees, not just in Darwinian ideas, but also in the development of statistical techniques, many of which he invents, is the ability to systematize esoteric things or things that are difficult to quantify. The female beauty thing is one. But where the origin of eugenics is relevant here is that his first major work in this area, Hereditary Genius, is really about establishing the greatness of men, as you quite correctly say, by categorising men as being eminent, coming from eminent families, and establishing how this eminence and greatness flowed through through families. And he very much thought, as do a lot of people at this time, that it is all genetic, Right? That it's not environmental. They don't have genes at this point. They don't have an understanding of heredity. That won't come for another, you know, 30 or 40 years. But it is Galton who comes up with the dichotomy of nature and nurture. He is the person who says nature versus nurture. And we people like us have abandoned this decades ago because the two things are not in conflict with each other. But for Galton, it is what are these characteristics in men that make them eminent, that make them great? And what is that underlying? natural nature element to it, which which is passed down through the generations. And that's what Hereditary Genius is. It's an attempt to statistically quantify <laughs> what he describes as geniuses. 
Yeah, and from there you sort of get all the putting people in boxes. You know, you've got the categories that you know, some people may have seen and we laugh at now. You're like, okay, these are imbeciles and these are morons and these, you know, this this idea that you can literally just stratify and quantify the population and say, well, these people shouldn't be allowed to have babies. And fundamentally, it's like that's you know that's obviously the root of it all. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And eugenics was always about power. It was always about the maintenance of power. It w- always was a political ideology, not a scientific idea. Although, it, as I say, it marshals science into that political ideology. But it is, you know, if, if you believe, if you are from a privileged background and, and you believe that white people and white British upper class men in the majority are the most important people on earth, but that societies have to be structured in particular ways with uh, sort of hegemonic power at one end and a happy middle and working class at the other. And you want to reduce the amount of, and I'm going to use Victorian terminology here, but people who are defective or undesirable, or as you say, you know, later we have pseudo clinical terms like imbecile and idiot and later moron that doesn't come until the 20th century. But these are, these are pseudo clinical diagnoses which are built around the idea of eugenics, the idea that if you fall into these specific categories, then these are the people that we don't want to reproduce so that the society is healthier. Now, at its inception, eugenics is is a sort of, it's a positive movement in the sense that we want to improve the quality of a people overall by reducing the number of undesirable people at the bottom end of society. And, you know, there's many qualifications with within what I mean by undesirable. I'm using their terminology. And we'll probably get on to, you know, value of, of, of people in society more generally later in the conversation. But you can't rank people without having people at the top and the bottom. So the eugenics ideas of Galton go hand in hand with the dysgenic ideas that also emerge at the same time. If you're selecting for quality at the top, you're also deselecting for lower quality at the bottom. So while it starts off as being a positive idea, you know, people of higher quality should mate with each other as decreed by Plato in Republic. And that way we will shift the balance towards a better quality of people. But if you do that, you're also deselecting at the bottom end. And so I think that this, this idea which I think had, you know, they thought they were noble intentions. It's always hand in hand with illiberal views and the control of of reproductive rights and a lack of autonomy of sections of society which are decreed to be less value than others by the powerful. And so that that's where we, you know, we, 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 100 years on, we look at eugenics as being a toxic idea, a, a, you know, a poisonous thing. But at the time, almost everyone was totally into it and thought these are... You know, these are good ideas. These are these are things which we should em- embrace. Yeah, it's it's something that you unfold in the book. The consequences of this, you know, the obvious example being the Holocaust and the uh, the Nazis' persecution, not just of Jews but of people who were disabled, people who were schizophrenic, people who were homosexual, a- anyone who they classed as not being right in their view. But I think what really shocked me is reading the book is the all the examples that you give going on until incredibly recently, like, you know, not just in living memory, but like in the past decade or so. Oh, of, no, not know, just the past decade, this reproduction. year. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it, there are contemporary practices, particularly in America, which are involuntary sterilisation. We never did it in the UK. There's a slight irony to that, that, you know, it gets... It is an idea which is created in Britain and nurtured in Britain, and it spreads all over the world. I think 30 
one country's had eugenic official eugenics policies, but the UK never did. I mean, that's the irony, isn't it? Yeah. It's like football. You know, we invent it, but yeah, you know, then the rest of the world gets really good at it. <laughs> well, that's the that's the pattern of empire. But it is it is um, we got away with it by a whisker, and it was. I'm, I'm fascinated by this period in history because it is such a sort of turmoil with industrialization and empire and global wars emerging and the rise of anti-Semitism throughout the 19th century, which will culminate in the, the Second World War and the Holocaust. And one of the key protagonists is Churchill. So Churchill is an enthusiastic eugenicist from the word go, from as soon as he discovers these ideas. And he is largely responsible for the writing of the legislation which would have been the UK's eugenics policies that had not the involuntary sterilisation clauses been vetoed by other MPs, specifically Josiah Wedgwood of the Wedgwood-Darwin clan. And so the Mental Deficiencies Act of 1913, which was a major act that dealt with people with mental health issues and institutionalization of those people, ran until the 1950s, right? So it's a, you know, it's a big policy that lasted for many decades. But it almost included involuntary sterilisation and then didn't. And that was why the UK didn't have official eugenics policies. In the States, who had begun embracing ideas of eugenics in the 1890s and then formalised them from 1907 onwards, and 30 states have eugenics policies up until the you know, second half of the 20th century, and we estimate 70 or 80,000 people were, were sterilised under those policies. And then in Germany, where similar sorts of ideas begin to emerge in the late 19th century and develop in the 1910s and, and 20s. And the eugenicists then, you know, again, almost universally supported by men of science and men of power as well. A weird sort of cul-de-sac in this, in this story is that most of the early eugenicists in Germany, in Weimar Germany, were not anti-Semitic and considered the purity of the Aryan race, or Nordic people is what they referred to them as then as, rather than Aryan, should be improved by mating with Jewish people because Jews were so regarded as so successful in intellectual pursuits. And it's only when in 33, with the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany, that the eugenicists effectively sort of concede that the best way they're going to get their eugenics policies enacted is by signing up to Nazism. And with signing up to Nazism comes anti-Semitism from Hitler's virulent anti-Semitism. And so it's, it's almost like this weird concession. The best way we can get eugenics enabled in Germany to protect the Nordic people is by embracing the, the anti-Semitism of, of Nazi Germany. And then there's this other really sort of baffling, breathtaking link which is that most of the policies of the Nazis that were eugenics, or racial hygiene is what they really called it, were derived from the American policies. I mean, they, they literally took the same legislation and translated it. They literally took the enthusiasts from America and brought them out to Berlin. The Berlin eugenics establishments were funded by Rockefeller and Carnegie and, and other American organizations. In the Nuremberg trials after the war, at the doctor's trial, which specifically dealt with the euthanasia and eugenics policies of the Nazis, they cite the Americans as their inspiration. So you've got this weird network, you know, it starts in the UK, the ideas spread, they spread to Germany and America. The Americans develop them in one particular way, the Germans develop them in another particular way. We don't succeed in developing eugenics policies in the UK for various reasons. 
And then the Germans sort of begin to extract eugenics policies from the Americans in the run-up of the war. And then it becomes the sort of deranged policies of the Nazis, which result in the Holocaust. Oof. It's, it's big stuff. And you know, in, in the book, this is still ongoing through, as you say, up until now. And you know the extent that you outline of things like enforced sterilizations in India. One of the few examples, I think, where they try and get men to have the snip rather than <laughs> controlling women. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah because it's quicker well. and cheaper. Yeah, um, but yeah then easier they, to get to. But then they discovered um, that men are more likely to resist than women, so they switched their policies oh, in funny uh, And then the, the horrific story we've seen of the First Nations people in, in Canada and, and just horrendous policies there. And as we've seen, um, as you mentioned, very recently in, in Trump's America and of people being sterilized, migrants being sterilized, you know, as they're, as they're crossing into the border. And why is this not going away? Well, I, I, that, that is a very good question that I do not have an answer to. I mean, the numbers are, you know, significantly lower, right? So it's, this isn't policy now in America, but there are dozens of examples in America and in Canada of enforced sterilizations or involuntary sterilizations, always of women, and they're always uh, women who are uh, in very low st socioeconomic status, or mo mostly in prison already or in detention centres if they're um, part of the immigration uh, sort of framework. And the legality of this is very difficult to unpick. There is a class action in Canada against the governments for enforced sterilisation for First Nations women, and that's ongoing. And you know, many many people are aware of the involuntary sterilizations of, of women in, in the ICE detention centers and, and in prisons in California most recently. I mean, people think of California as being, you know, the most liberal state, which it is in, in many ways. But California was the state that embraced eugenics more enthusiastically than any other state in the US. And, and they have been involuntary sterilizing women in prisons until the last few years. I don't know how it still continues because it seems so baffling to us today. Yeah, I, I want to kind of, you know, continuing the, the cheery line of conversation about things, why are they still here, is specifically the, the racist and the, the white supremacist side of eugenics. And you mentioned Churchill, and I, I think there are certainly strands of people who are almost reluctant to admit that Churchill was an absolutely massive racist. And Galton was a massive racist. And a lot of these people were really racist and you sort of go well it's of their time it's they were people of their time and can we really make that argument and then also how you know how is the sort of the the racist and white supremacist side of the legacy of eugenics playing out yeah i mean it's really important for you know people like us who do who end up being historians by default because we talk about the origins of our fields but i think that one, one thing that scientists don't do very well is pay academic history its due diligence in terms of looking at its evidence base. And I really think that scientists need to be better at history and better at weighing up the evidence that's in front of them with the same scrutiny that we apply to looking at our, you know, our scientific data. Now, when, when it comes to things like, you know, an absolute cornerstone of, of understanding of history is that we judge people by their standards and not by ours. And it's very easy with the benefit of hindsight to look back on people of the past and say, these were terrible people who did terrible things. You know, that's a, a trap that is often sprung and we have to be wary of it. But it is possible to contextualise their views in their time and use that as a framework for understanding what it is that, you know, how, how individuals played out policies that, that you know, 
have great global or, or local significance. So when people say, you know, they were of their time, or you can't change the past, or you can't change history, well, you know, they're not very sophisticated arguments. People are always of their time. It is literally impossible to be of another time unless you are a time traveller. We can contextualise views of people in the past by looking at the views of other people. And just like today, people of the past did not all have the same view. People argued about all sorts of things or else no progress and no history would, would, would occur. And then the third point that I like to make is that the past is the thing you cannot change. History is by definition always changing. It's always challenged and is always interpreted through a contemporary lens. So the first thing to say is everyone was more racist in the past, right? That's a non-controversial thing to say. The second thing is that white supremacy in its sort of traditional imperial form was pretty much universal at that time. And the hegemonic power of white upper class men was part of the framework of, of popular discourse on any subject, politics, science, whatever. So when you look at people like Galton and Churchill, and I'm going to put those two together in the same pot, they did have views that were typical for their time, although I argue that they were pretty extreme. And if you compare the views of, say, I don't know, Galton to Darwin or Huxley on things like race science and imperialism and slavery, you find that they have different views, right? And Huxley and Darwin are abolitionists through and through. And Galton and Churchill have much clearer ideas about the white British people are the greatest on earth. And therefore, it is our moral duty to fill the earth with people who look more like them. And that's also Cecil Rhodes's view at the same time. But, you know, Cecil Rhodes, who we, we absolutely condemn for being an imperialist monster today, was also condemned during his life for being an imperialist monster. So it's not, it's not good enough to say they were of their time or they had views which were typical for their time. They had views which were regarded by some people in society as absolutely monstrous at that time. Now, when it comes to eugenics, there's almost universal support for the idea that people can be improved, that populations can be improved through, through eugenic policies. It isn't universal, but it is almost universal. And it's also, and I think this is really interesting, it's bipartisan, right? So you've got the Churchills on the right wing, saying, yes, we should definitely improve the stock of the British people using eugenics. And Arthur Balfour, so at the first eugenics conference in London in 1912, Churchill's there as, I think, vice chair, Churchill, future prime minister. Arthur Balfour, former prime minister, is giving the keynote speech. And all of the people that are field, that me and you have studied our whole life, are all there. You know, the Pearsons and uh, Reginald Punnett, and they're all there talking about heredity and, and, and genetics. So that's the right wing, but also the origins of the socialist movements in the UK are also heavily tied to eugenics policies. So you've got people like Beveridge and popular figures like George Bernard Shaw and Beatrice and Sidney Webb, the founders of the Fabian Society, are also really interested in eugenics ideas and promote eugenics. The New Statesman publishes editorials, the Manchester Guardian, both left-wing publications publish editorials in support of, of eugenics. So it's bipartisan. It's broadly supported as an idea across, across society, but not universally. And in fact, one of the people that plays a big part in opposing eugenics is the Christian apologist and arch-Catholic G.K. Chesterton, who wrote a book called Eugenics and Other Evils, 
if that gives you an indication of his views. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really like about your book is, you know, the first half is really laying out this this history of where did eugenics come from, how was it enacted, all the way up to the, you know, the, the horrific episodes of the Second World War, and then in the second half, you know, you do go into what's still going on today and in the second half of the twentieth century, but you really do embed it in genetics. It's a wonderful explainer of like, what do we know about how our genes make us who we are in concert with the environment? And I think that's really important. And it's so interesting you pick up that like people like Haldane, like Morgan, they were like, nah, this this just doesn't check out scientifically. Because one of the lovely quotes that I really liked that, that you wrote is like, one thing that we do know about human genetics with absolute confidence is how little we know. And all the emerging stuff from genomics and, um, you know, we, we recently interviewed Paige Harden about her book, you know, looking at genetics and life outcomes and polygenic risk scores and all of this. And it's like, this is really, really, really complicated. And, you know, when you look at things like animal breeding, you know, if you if you breed in enormous cows with enormous udders, they have other health problems. So it's complicated, man. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's, it's I mean, hard. It's, we're, we're never going to be unemployed, right? And, yeah. and I think that the whole problem, not just with the eugenics movements, but also just more generally, is that people always turn to science for simple answers to complex problems. And, you know, the zealots or the people who aren't as well informed or aren't experts in their fields they're the one they're the first ones to say yeah this is definitely true whereas you know people like me and you and and Paige and will will be the first ones to say you know we know loads about genetics but like i say we also know that we know you know where our limits are does any of our current knowledge of genetics human genetics and heredity give us enough freedom to enact policies that look like the eugenics ones of the past. And I say, no, I also say, I can't really see a time when that is going to change. So, you know, the the analogy with with farming has been present since, you know, since Plato is talking about it in Republic and Galton talks about it and Churchill talks about it. And even Richard Dawkins last year Mm -hmm. in one of his less well-considered tweets said, you know, it works for roses, it works for cows or sheep or whatever, why wouldn't it work for humans? Well, I remember reading that and thinking, that's a good question. I know it's a needless provocation, but it is a good question. And you have to answer, well, I try to answer that question and it's not a good analogy. I mean, the conclusion I, I came to, one of the things I did, I think, which is which is something that most people don't do when they start talking about breeding and eugenics and comparing humans to farm animals, is I spoke to a shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, research. Uh, yeah, yeah. I spent some time talking to a shepherd and asking him questions about what breeding is actually like and is this a valid comparison? And I think that when people compare humans to agricultural animals in order to think about eugenics questions, they got no idea what farmers actually do and they got no idea what breeding programs are actually like. So the analogy falls apart because of the, well, I mean, one of the things is the wastefulness of farming, which, you know, we, we all good farmers try to reduce. But unless you're willing to severely lower the standards that we have about looking after humans, which I don't think people are willing to do, then that analogy falls apart there. I mean, who gets to be the stud male? You get one ram for a whole farm. Exactly. Like. One sheep will, will impregnate a hundred females. And that's not how we structure society. Thank God. I think. <laughs> but, but the other thing is that the, the, the analogy doesn't work at all because farming has very specific intentions. 
right? A rose, a beautiful rose, doesn't grow in any old ground and has been bred carefully for hundreds of years to look in a particular way according to our aesthetic desires. But as a result of that, it needs to be nurtured in particular ways. It needs to be fed specific foods. And the roses that we want and see at flower shows or buy in garage forecourts wouldn't grow in any old garden or wouldn't grow in a crack in the pavements in the desert or in Norway or, or you know, or, or wherever. Most farm animals would be instantly dead if they lived in the wild because they are bred specifically to exist in the environments of farms to have one or a few specific functions like massive udders or meaty legs or, you know, whatever we actually want from them. So it's a daft analogy. I mean, it makes no sense to use that as an analogy. And that's what we, of course, all it says is that humans are, have genetics, right? You, of course we could breed, you know, if, you, if, if it were ethically possible, acceptable and desirable, of course we could breed humans to have specific characteristics. But it would be a terrible thing to do and we could turn... I don't know, you know, we could we could introduce characteristics that were individual characteristics in humans and they would suffer from terrible other diseases and they wouldn't be able to function in other situations. So it's a completely fatuous thing to say and it's a completely specious way of justifying eugenics policies of the past or, or present. But it's it's ubiquitous. You know, it's very it, it seems to be a very persuasive argument though. I think only because people haven't thought about it very hard. That's all for now. Thanks to Adam Rutherford for chatting with me. His new book, Control, The Dark History and Troubling Present of Eugenics, is out on February the 3rd, wherever books are sold. We'll be back next time taking a look at the life and work of Scottish biologist Darcy Wentworth Thompson, one of the first scientists to bring together the fields of mathematics and biology. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does make a difference, apparently, and it does help more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayle and audio production is by the wonderful Hannah Varrell. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, goodbye.